Amen. It does make an extreme difference the way we choose to see the world around us. Amen. You can look at it through the lens of culture with this hopeless sense of just it's never going to get any better. Or we can look at it as Jesus did and see a people that are lost and in need of a Savior. And we can see the beauty in creation and the wonder of all that he has created and uh, worship him in that. And it's an amazing, amazing truth. I love that song. Um, I will choose to see the world in grace. I will choose to see the world in gospel. Man, I love that. Man, when we put the gospel first and foremost in our lives, and that's the lens by which we look through, it changes everything. Uh, Do you ever notice that when you're looking through the lens of the gospel and the need to share the gospel with those that have never heard, uh, it makes your life much less self-oriented? It's not about me as much anymore. It's not about my day and my schedule and my things and my wants and my needs. When you realize that there are literally millions upon millions of people that have never even heard the gospel, let alone heard it and rejected it. Man, if we can't stop in our day and just think, God, how am I in this global plan? How am I putting my gifts and my talents and my time to work for your kingdom? And listen, you're not going to reach the world. Maybe you're called to go to your workplace or your neighborhood and see your neighbors in the eyes of the gospel. Maybe you're called to support someone who is going into a mission field, whether here in the States or overseas. I heard it one way. Maybe you're the rope that that person or persons are tethered back to for support. Maybe you're the Barnabas, as we talked about a few months ago. The Barnabas that supports and encourages and is just a support team for someone like the Apostle Paul who changed the face of the known world. I mean, how are you seeing the world around you? Man, what a great truth. What an amazing, amazing song. Psalm 139, we're going to read there in just a moment. Psalm 139. We are finishing up our Conversations with God series. And so I say that with the expectation that we're going to be finishing it up today. Uh, the Lord has kind of, I thought this was going to be a four-week series. Uh, as I was writing it, the Lord gave me uh, just kind of a leading into another idea. And it's not like an audible voice or anything like that. It was just kind of... You know, when you're studying scripture and you feel like kind of centered on a topic. And he did that again last week and today. And so as we kind of go through this sixth week on conversations with God, I want to review just real quickly what we talked about. Because we've hit some, listen, some tough topics. And we've talked about your motives. The why you do what you do. Listen, I've said it so many times, I'll say it again. God is much more concerned with why you do what you do than what you do. So you can do all the right things for the wrong reason or the wrong heart, and God is not impressed. People are impressed. God is not impressed. And sometimes we find ourselves doing all the right things for the right reasons, and people don't seem to notice. But I want to encourage you, God does. God sees exactly what's going on. So we talked about motives. We talked about giving and tithing. Man, there's a topic that's touchy in church. And you want to get people on edge, talk about their money, right? Instantly, do I have my wallet? Did they take it from me already when I wasn't looking? <laughs> They're going to pass that plate again? Maybe. I don't know. Man, when we talk about giving, I want to remind us all, God doesn't need your money. God is not sitting in heaven going, oh, man, I hope they give because without that, we're going to be short this week, Jesus. That's not how that works. I mean, he owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills. 
all the money, all the wealth, all everything that you see is the possessions that you have. They're really his. You've just been loaned them. And I tell people this. I believe this from my own life. My wife and I, we talk about this. Any money we have is not really our money. It's God's money that he is loaning to us. And I will stand one day and give an account as a steward of God. Okay, what did you do with my money? But so many people have this mindset of giving that what? I give my 10% and the 90 is mine. Well, come on, God, I gave my 10%. Isn't that all that's required of me? As though he only owns 10% of what you have. We talked about that. It's about just this heart of worship. I love when you get into the New Testament, Jesus doesn't use the word tithe in a sense of a command. He says, give. Isn't that awesome? What freedom there is in that. Just give. Paul says it this way, in between you and God in your heart, you work out what you're going to give and then give it, here's the key, cheerfully, joyfully. Where does that joy and cheer come from? The act of giving, that's, it's produced by doing that, but it starts and ends in my heart. I, I've talked to people, they say, man, sometimes I've given and I've given faithfully, but there's been sometimes it wasn't cheerfully. It was one of those where you're putting the, the check in the plate, and as it's going by, you're like, can I take it out real quick and they won't notice? Maybe just put it back in my pocket? They'll, uh, they'll think I gave. We all struggle with that. That's why we talked about that a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, giving. Man, we've talked about heaven and hell. Again, you want to get people on edge, talk about hell in church nowadays. Isn't that a crazy thought? You can't talk about what Jesus talked about in church or people will get upset at you in church. We walked through all of that. And this whole time we've been talking, if you were sitting across the table, if you could sit down with Jesus and have coffee with him, what would you talk to him about? What would he want you to know about these topics? And often we found ourselves, especially even with the topic of faith, is our faith about us? Is your faith about you? Absolutely not. It It has very little to do with you. It has everything to do with him. He's the author and finisher of our, so if he authored it and he finishes it, he perfects it, then what am I called to do? Just what little bit I can muster up, I give back to him. And I just trust him and I believe in him. Do I believe him only when things are good? Mm, No, that's not faith. Faith says when it looks great and it looks hopeless, I trust in my only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. We walk by Faith, not by sight, Paul says. There's a guy that could testify about walking by faith. Shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in prison. All that he went through. And he says, no, 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 man. This is nothing. This momentary trial that I'm going through pales in comparison to the wonder that awaits me in his eternity in heaven. Now, what is that wonder? We talked about that with heaven. What is it exactly that heaven looks like? We don't know a lot of details, but that's okay. You know what we do know? Jesus is there. His presence is there. I believe your loved ones that knew Christ are there. I believe there's a reuniting. I believe that we will know each other in some sense, the Bible suggests. To what degree? I don't know. The Bible isn't clear on that. But I can tell you this. It's not a vacation. It's a wonderful, beautiful place of rest and joy and peace, but the rest isn't inactivity. Man, it's a wonderful place of an eternity of just worshiping our Savior. That's why I tell people when they're like, oh, that worship music went a little long. Church went a little long today, Pastor. No one tells me that here. 
at least never to my face. You may tell each other this, and I never know. That's cool. I don't, whatever. It doesn't bother me. You could tell me, and I'd be like, hmm, okay, praise the Lord. But, man, if, if you think church services that last an hour, hour and a half, and there's some churches two hours, you think that's a little long to worship? You're going to be really surprised by eternity. Because it just keeps going. Oh, come on, we don't worship him all the time, do we? I don't know, but it sure seems to suggest that's a big part of what we do. We serve him and we worship him and we bow down before his throne. Man, Dave's song, can you even, it's so hard for me to imagine that day, brother. A day of just no pain, no sin. How about no temptation to sin? How about that one? Anybody ever get tired of being tempted to sin, tired of fighting temptation? Raise your hand. Tired of fighting temptation to sin. Okay, not every hand went up. That's interesting. (laughs) You guys, if you're not fighting temptation to sin, I want you to sign my Bible because that's, man, you've arrived. (laughs) Paul says, I have not arrived. I've not achieved everything. I still struggle with this whole spirit and flesh thing. So if you've rivaled Paul, and praise the Lord. But can I suggest maybe one of the reasons some of us don't raise our hands is because we don't want people to think we actually battle with temptation to sin? Maybe we don't raise our hands because we've given in to the temptation to sin recently and we feel convicted by that. I was fighting temptation and then I gave in, so I can't even raise my hand in that one. Can I tell you, his grace is there for you, not as a card to get out of jail free, but as a way to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you will confess it, he will receive you. If you're in Christ, you're already in Christ. You don't have to get saved again. You can't lose what you didn't purchase. You can't lose what you didn't have a hand in getting. So if you can't lose it, because you can't earn it, then he says he won't take it away from you. But he does say this, if you sin as a Christian, it can sever the intimacy of that relationship with Christ. And you feel so distant from him. And we've learned and walked through a lot of things over the last six weeks. And I know some of these topics have hit really close to home. Some have been harder for others. For some, finances hit much harder than the topic of hell. (laughs) Some of you are like, you could preach on hell again, but could you leave finances alone for another year? I'd appreciate that. That would be great. And this morning, I want to continue in the same vine or or vein because the whole point of the series is to talk about the things that we don't usually talk about in church. And not because we don't want to or mean to, we just don't. It just seems to not come up. And so I've been praying, man, trust me over this series. God, what would you have me to talk about? If, and if we could sit across from Jesus, I'm thinking, what would people want to know? So this morning, we're going to continue down a little bit of a tough road for some. And I pray that you will see the hearts of these messages as we talk about the sacredness of life. Specifically, the topic of abortion. And I know some of you right there, when I said that word, abortion, emotions begin to flood your mind. Some of you feel anger because it just, you can't understand why somebody would commit that act. And it just, it actually literally makes you angry to think about someone taking the life of an unborn child. For some of you, there's, there's sadness. Maybe even conviction if you're here and you've made that choice or you have a family member that made that choice. And looking back on it now, your heart just breaks for that person. Yes, for the child, but even for the mom that is going through the after effects of all that, which they don't, unfortunately, tell moms about. 
there's so little communication with a mom that's considering abortion about what could happen traumatically to that person after the fact, and I think that is such a shame. If you're going to encourage someone to, to commit that act, I'm, tell them the truth about what comes after. Man, there are so many moms that are just struggling with depression, just sadness and grief and conviction because of what they've done. So maybe you're on a gambit of emotions. Maybe you're at the anger end or the, you're frustrated or you're confused or you're just so many. Just the word itself in our culture. I remember when I was in junior high, it started becoming a hot-button issue, abortion. And every time I turned around, there was some Channel One special. You guys remember Channel One? I don't have Channel One anymore. They probably do. Channel One would talk about all these different things and stuff. And I remember thinking, man, what, is that, what does that word even mean? I didn't even know as a seventh grader what abortion was. Now, it's so commonly spoken of in our culture, it's just, we just understand it. It's accepted in a lot of ways and rejected in a lot of ways. And can I tell you something at the onset of this whole talk? Standing outside an abortion clinic, shouting at women going into that clinic with signs that says, God hates you, you're a sinner, and you're going to burn, do nothing for the glory of God. And in fact, you're pushing people from Jesus. You know what you want to do to help someone that's going through that situation? You pray for them. You have a conversation with them. You pull your checkbook out and write some checks to help with some diapers and some needs. You don't know why that person is making that decision. That person may not want anything to do with that choice, but there's so much pressure from family and friends that are just pushing that person. And then they show up and Christians are out there hollering at them, calling them names, like, and I'm just going to say it, calling them whores. Wow. Is that, is that what Jesus would do? You know, Jesus was so much harder on the Pharisees than he was the woman at the well. Now, would Jesus speak truth to these people? You better believe he would. He'd speak his word to them. I don't think Jesus would go, hey, it's okay, no big deal. That's the other side of the spectrum. Like, Jesus just doesn't care. No, 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 no. In all of these emotions we feel, we have to take a step back. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look into the word of God. And I want to say, okay, emotions aside, and I know that sounds extremely hard to do, but not built on emotion not built on cultural norms or understandings. I want to go to the Word of God as His church and say, what does this book teach us about the sacredness of life? Because that's really the talk we need to have. Not just about pro-life or pro-choice. It's what is life to God? How does God view life, human life? And I believe as we go through the Word of God, we'll see that life is sacred in the eyes of our God. And therefore, I believe, needs to be protected. Some of you may have discovered as you've read the Word of God over your life and your journey that the Bible does not specifically deal with the issue of abortion by name. You cannot go to a verse in the Bible where it says, Thou shalt not commit abortion. But that shouldn't really concern us, right? Show me the verse where it says, Thou shalt not drink Budweiser. I don't think it's in there. I'm pretty sure Budweiser didn't make it into the Scripture. So it's okay to drink as much Budweiser as I want, right? Because the Bible doesn't specifically say, thou shalt not drink Budweiser. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't have to say, don't drink Budweiser excessively until the point of you passing out. Because it tells us a principle. Don't consume alcohol to the point of drunkenness. So does Budweiser need to be in there? No, because there's a general life principle that we can bank on. 
Do you see what I'm getting at here? The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not do this. But can we see a general understanding of God's view of life that would help us to develop a conviction or an idea about this topic in our culture today? Let me also say this, and this is so vital because I feel that this is something we all need to battle with. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. And I fear that in Christianity today, we're treating it like that. We say things like we're pro-life and we're pro-life and we're pro-life until we meet a mom who's in a situation where she doesn't know what to do and we reject her and condemn her and push her down and make her sit in the back and not even let her come into service because how dare you? And then we stand and we say, but all life is sacred. And then we wonder why these people end up in lines at abortion clinics because nobody came alongside them and said, man, can I just walk with you? Can I just encourage you? So listen, if you're here today, and I'm not naive enough to think it's not possible. I don't know of any situation in this room. I'm not here talking to any one person. I'm just telling you, if you are here today, or you're listening to this recording on, on CD or online, and you have committed the act of abortion, God's grace did not stop being extended to you in that moment. And if you're here and you committed the act of abortion and you have no conviction, there's no guilt, there's no nothing about that, and you don't even have an issue with it in your mind right now as you sit in this room, then that's fine. I'm not, I guess I'm not speaking to you then. But if you're here and you do feel like, man, how does God view me now that I made this decision? Can I tell you, God views you the exact same way he viewed you before you did it, with love. Because he loves the world. And if you are outside of Jesus Christ, then he says, if you will cry out to me, I will forgive you of all sin. And I will enter you into my presence because of my gift of salvation to you. If you're here and you know Christ and you committed that act, his grace is still being extended to you. And you can go to him and pray to him and ask him to, to remind you of who you are before him. So I want to be clear. If you've committed this act, it is not the end of your relationship with God. And he wants to enter, or bring you into his presence, into his throne room. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe 15 and 16, that he wants to give you grace and mercy in the time of need. And so I want to be clear on that. As we walk through this whole topic, I don't want to be cold-hearted in any way. I pray you would know my heart in this. And I, you can ask Sandra, the enemy all week has been telling me, you don't want to preach that. I'm telling you, you don't want to bring that up. People aren't going to like that. And I just had a piece from God saying, who cares? And if it's my word, then who cares? And you know, Sandra said something to me that was so wise, and it's just amazing because she is so smart. I mean, obviously, she married me. So if you're like, how smart could she be? Oh, way smart. Okay. That's probably the one thing she's like, hmm, why? We were talking about this the other day, and I said something about that. And she said, you know, she said, if we don't talk about it in church, then all people are left with is hearing it in the world. If we don't talk about it, then we're not, it's not not being talked about. It's just we're not including ourselves in the conversation. It's being talked about. It's been talked about. But we got to get included in the conversation, and we need to do it in a right way, in the right way. So let's look at the, the Word of God, and let's see what does the Bible teach us about the sacredness of life. Psalm 139, look at verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. 
Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knows right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet my being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Man, this is, to me, one of the most popular psalms for many of us. There is a part in there that is so amazing. You want to talk about the sacredness of life. David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, the first thing we have to tackle in this talk is that you were not the result of some evolutionary process. See, the minute you take away your uniqueness as a created being of God, now destroying that life of a, just a result of some evolutionary mutations over billions of years, well, that's no big deal. I mean, what uniqueness do you really have? You know, nothing special about you. It's just survival of the fittest. I mean, hey, if you go, you go. There's no value in that life. And I truly believe the teaching of evolution, which this is not a talk against evolution. Maybe that'll be next week. I don't know. This is not a talk against evolution, but I'm telling you, I'd see a direct correlation between those two things. If I can remove you being created by God, unique individual, with purpose. You see the word fashion there? In the King James, it says you were fashioned. You know what that means? Not just created, like someone created this chair or created that table. It's saying made with purpose. So think about what David says. In your mother's womb, David says, you were stitched together. You were created with purpose even in the womb. That's how much God values life. That he gets involved at the very beginning of life, which is conception, not physical birth. Man, in the womb, David says, God, you, you knew me. Can you imagine that? I remember when I was listening to a talk by Louis Giglio who was talking about just the intimate creation of God. And he talked about, I believe it's 16 weeks. And I probably should have reviewed this because now you're going to be like, Google it and be like, oh, it was 22 weeks. He was lying. Um, I believe it was 16 weeks. There's a, your body produces a mechanism that opens up the eyelid. And it cuts a line straight across this eye and straight across that line. And then it dissolves and goes away because it did its purpose. And for the first time, you begin to actually blink. That just happened by chance. Oops. Yeah, okay. How many times did evolution screw up? It was like, well, it was like this and like this. Nope, it was like this, like that. Oh, that doesn't work. Nope, that doesn't work. Trial and error. Well, okay, billions of years later, we got a straight line. It is silliness. Think about DNA for a second. Just the DNA that makes you, you. The book that is DNA. The complexity of that book. Would anybody in this room believe that a book would fall from the sky just by chance? An explosion creates a book with pages and colors and all this stuff. Title pages, contents, clear thoughts. From sentence to sentence, punctuation, all these things, things I can't barely do, happens by chance. And a book is created, a 50-page book. Would anybody in this room believe for a second that's possible for a completely logical, continuous thought book to just appear out of nowhere? Colored pages, illustrations, printed, bound, 
Here you go. Anybody believe that's just going to fall out of the sky? Checking, checking. Okay. Do you realize the book that is your DNA is so much more complicated than any book we even have? And we think that just happened? Or maybe there was this God that formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. I mean, that makes more sense. David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Life is valuable because of who created it, specifically who created you. You were created with purpose. And it wasn't to get all that you can get before you die. Man, what a shallow way to live this life. It is to honor the God that created you with all things. But see, if I can believe in evolution, I remove God as creator. Guess what else happens? I remove God as my authority. If evolution is true and God had nothing to do with my creation, then I don't have to answer to God for anything. I can do whatever I want. He has no say over me. So your life becomes meaningless in the sense of eternity. God has no authority over you, so you're your own judge. You can do whatever you want, and you can end life whenever you want. People will say, well, we shouldn't force morality on people. Let me ask you a question. Is it legal or illegal to murder another human being inside the womb in our country today? Legal or illegal? What will happen if I murder someone like my neighbor who had a massive party last night at 1230 at night? Just speaking hypothetically, okay? Just throwing out a random example. I don't even know where that one came from. It just popped in there. What would happen if I murder my neighbor? I'm going to? Why? Because murder is morally. We force morality on people every single day. But in this area, all of a sudden it becomes cloudy and confusing. In this area, it's, I don't know. And you know why it's confusing? I believe because we don't really understand the purpose of life, and we don't understand the creator of life. And we remove the uniqueness, and so now it's just this fetus in the womb. It's not a person yet, because our culture says it's not a person, so our culture dictates truth, right? I mean, that's how that works. What if our culture decided tomorrow murder is completely legal? Would we just, oh, okay, well, culture says it. We must do it. Or would we say, no, you know what? There's something intrinsically in me that says that's wrong. Tribal cultures all over the world, there's common things that are just wrong. Every new tribe missionary that's gone to a first-time people group, adultery, they do it, but it's wrong. Why is it wrong? We don't know. It's just wrong. How does evolutionary thinking teach adultery is wrong? Murder. Some of them do it, but we know it's wrong. Hatred, we know it's wrong. We don't know why it's wrong, but it's wrong. No gospel, no Bible, no Jesus, but they just have this intrinsic knowledge. Something is wrong about this. We may do it, but we know something's wrong about this. How can that be? How can people groups thousands and thousands of miles from the jungles of Venezuela to the coast of Europe, both talk about a flood experience in their backgrounds where the world was drowned by a flood. And God, the God, now they've changed the God, they've perverted it to their pagan gods, but this God out there somewhere 
was angry with the people, and he covered the world in water. But there was this boat. You think, oh, it's craziness. Tribe in Venezuela never met anyone outside their tribe. 300 people had a story of a God who drowned the world but saved some in a boat and preserved humanity. How do they have that story if evolution is true? How can they possibly know that with no Bible, no Jesus, no God in their history anywhere? Could it be they have a common ancestor in the Tower of Babel? Could it be they, that they went through the flood and then people were going on and at the Tower of Babel when God separated the nations, they all had this common history they experienced in their heritage? And again, this isn't a talk on that. It's a talk on showing you, listen, God is creator. And you were created with purpose. And don't let our culture rob you of that. David says, man, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want to give you a few more references to Scripture on the sacredness of life so we can understand the clear teaching of Scripture. You ready for this one? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This was actually referenced in um, the song we sang, No Longer Slaves. I don't know if you caught that line in there when it talks about being formed in the womb. Listen to Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So now God is saying, Before you were even in the womb, I knew you. Hmm. Genesis 1.27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Genesis 1.27 seems to suggest that we have a creator, that he formed men and women. Job 31 and verse 15. Job 31.15 says this, Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Job is the oldest written Old Testament book. It's the first Old Testament book we believe and even Job understood, he says, we were formed in the womb. Not just him, but what? Others were formed in the womb as well. Life beginning in their minds in the womb. Psalm 22 and verse 10. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Man, it's this amazing picture of life beginning before birth and even after birth. It continues on. We see from these Old Testament verses that life begins in the womb and not merely when the child is born. Even in the New Testament, we see an amazing example of this when John the Baptist, while in his mother's womb, comes in contact with Jesus Christ, who is in the womb of Mary. Listen to what Luke 141 says. Luke 141 says this, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And isn't that interesting? Just the sound of the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, caused John the Baptist to literally leap in the womb. Well, some of you that have experienced pregnancy, you know that leaping in the womb isn't uncommon, right? How Any moms think their kids were doing like gymnastics in there, like in the Olympics, okay? Because you're just like, seriously, my kidneys, come on, stop, seriously. I remember Sandra one time was like, this kid's going to be a karate star because he is like high-eyeing my insides like crazy. I added the high-eyeing in there because it's just my way, you know, you guys know what hayaing is, right? Haya, right? Hayaing, okay? Anyway, it's a very scientific martial arts term. I wouldn't expect everyone to know that, so it's fine. But what do we see just in these few verses 
And I'm, I'm, I've not given you the exhaustive list. I'm just giving you a handful. While none of these verses talk about abortion, do we see any clear teaching of God's view of life and when it begins? I believe he's teaching us it begins in the womb. For this fact alone, I do believe that God is pro-life. This is why he sent his son to the world. John 10.10 says this, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The word for life there is not referring to this earthly life only, but an eternal life. We have the word life in English, just one word for life. In the Greek, there is actually two words for life. It's translated life in English no matter how it's used for us, but there's two ideas. Life, temporal, earthly, human life, life, eternal life, the life to come. In this verse, Jesus is speaking specifically of the life to come. He's saying, I have come to give you life, not just life to experience here, which is good and great and blessed by God if we know him as Savior, but there's this eternal life. So is God pro-life? I believe he is pro-life because I believe he wants us to live life. The word for life, again, is so key in this verse. God is so pro-life that he gave his only son for us to be able to live. Think about that for a moment. God is so pro-life that he gave his only son, rose him from the dead, so that we could live. There are some cultural oppositions to this thinking. I mentioned evolution. I believe that's one of the oppositions. And again, let me say this over and over, and I know I don't necessarily need to, but if you are all here thinking, well, you just don't know. You don't understand. I don't understand. I don't know what you've gone through or what you've been through. I can't even begin to imagine the choices or how difficult those choices were. My hope in today is to give us food for thought to think about today and tomorrow and the next day and how to affect positive change in our culture for Christ. Please do not think this is just me being like, oh, yeah, it's, it's not. But there are some cultural oppositions to being pro-life. We've heard these. The two most popular is what about in the case of someone being pregnant, becoming pregnant, not of their choosing? I'm not going to use the words that are used because I don't want to put thoughts in anyone's heads as far as younger people here. But people will say, well, what about a woman who didn't really want to be pregnant but was forced to be pregnant by someone else, whether forcibly or in their own family? What do you do with that? I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't expect that person to go through with the pregnancy. We don't expect that person to deliver. Can I tell you what I would approach this with? If someone came in my office tomorrow and said this to me, here's what I would say. I believe that woman should be supported and encouraged, reminded constantly that what happened to her was not her fault. That's where you start. That's where you start. And you just give them gospel. And you just let grace rule and reign in that. And if they know Christ, man, you remind them that God is still on the throne and God loves them. And listen, there's times, if that happened tomorrow, I would call my wife and I'd say, hey, can you come to the office? And we would sit and probably just cry with this person. And our hearts would break for them. Because the fact of someone taking advantage of someone like that disgusts me. And it angers me that somebody would think they have the right to put their hands on another human being and take advantage of them. Can I tell you something? You, unless, you, unless you marry the person first, you have no right to put your hands on a, another man or woman. If you're a guy and you're single, keep your hands off her. If you're a woman and you're single, keep your hands off them. You get married, hey, praise God. <laughs> we won't go into details, but to the victor go the spoils. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but even then there's boundaries, isn't there? Doesn't Scripture give boundaries? Man, you respect one another. You honor one another. Listen to one another. 
And I would cry with this person and I would remind them of that. But listen, here's the reality. I would speak truth. And here's the truth. A horrible injustice was done to this woman, but that does not give her the right to commit a horrible injustice against that other life. Here's the truth of it. It's not her body. That's the baby's body. Because I believe it's a created life by God with uniqueness. So understand what I'm saying here. We show love and support and grace and we rally around that person and we encourage them with things like other options, adoption and family members that might step in and all these things. But we don't encourage an injustice to be done because an innocent person was taken advantage of. We don't take advantage of another innocent person. What about in the case where the mother's life is in jeopardy? And this is one that... Again, I am not pretending these choices are easy in the heat of the moment. And if this was Sandra and I, I can tell you what we would do. We would just cry out, God, would you give us wisdom? Sandra has a cousin that actually twice with Diana, twice almost was the last one, almost had serious complications. And they basically said, do not get pregnant again because you will not live through the next pregnancy or the delivery. And it's crazy to me to think about what were they, what were they thinking as they were standing over that bedside, t- or as her and her husband were that, by that bed and just talking. But can I tell you, I'm so thankful that they went through with the delivery, and now mom and child are doing great. So what do you do, man? You just you pray and ask God. But again, you let God be God in that situation. And I don't know that I would willingly end the life of a child for the hope of saving the life of my wife. This is just me talking. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to tell you to pray, ask God for wisdom, seek his face and see what he would say. But if it was me and Sandra in that situation, our hearts, I I totally know, she doesn't have to even come over and tell you, we would say, God, you be God in this moment and your will be done. So those are the two cultural oppositions, right? And I don't mean to get emotional. I apologize for that. But These are what we hear people say. Can I tell you that according to statistics, in the case of the health of the mother being at risk, that is less than one-tenth of one percent of all abortions in the world. An abortion being committed because of the health of the mother is less than one-tenth of one percent of the abortions in the world. After that, the issue of a pregnancy that was forced upon a woman, that is less than four percent of all abortions in the world. Over 95% of abortions, according to those pursuing them, are due to a mother or a father's encouraging termination, belief that either she or they cannot support that child, or she or they merely do not want the child. I need to get a tissue. I'm like just all over the place. I'm a wreck. Sorry, TJ. He loves when I do this. When you think about this then, Over 95% of abortions are, if we had to kind of really bottom shelf this thing and say this is the basics of it, are either because I can't support it, don't know what to do with the child, or I don't want this child. I mean, think about that for a moment. We're saying over 95% of abortions in the world are because of either convenience or a lack of the ability to take care of a child. Can I tell you something? This is why I'm extremely thankful for Lapeer Pregnancy Resource Center. Because it's a ministry that will come alongside moms and dads. They're creating curriculum for dads, by the way. How great is that? 
teaching dads how to be dads, how to stay in the picture. So many moms come to their center with no dad in the picture because the dad just freaked and ran. Because no one was in his life to teach him how to be a man. And so I love that they're coming alongside these couples or these individuals and saying, here's the support. Listen, we have the diapers. We have the needs. We can get you supports. Encouraging them with just another option. And that's my biggest issue in our culture today. There's no other option being presented. It is terminate and be happy. Terminate because it's not really a life anyway. Terminate because it's better for you. And no one's coming in and saying, listen, that is one option in our world today. But let me tell you about another option. I'm so thankful for the Prayer Pregnancy Resource Center. And I'm thankful for our church that has supported them financially so they're able to continue to minister to moms and dads in need. Because I believe truly it's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of awareness of what's out there. We see that God is pro-life, pro-sanctity of life. But I truly believe that we must all value human life. We must value all human life. Do you see all life is sacred? If you are going to see the necessity of protecting and looking after the rights of the unborn, should we not then look after the needs of those in our own lives? We must see one another as creations of God, and as such, we carry intrinsic worth. Paul said this in Acts chapter 17. You can jot it down for time's sake. I'm not going to turn there. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Speaking about God, says this, And hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, one blood of all men. Then he says in verse 29, For as much then as we are the offspring of God. Paul is speaking to this to a group that doesn't even know Christ. And when he speaks of the offspring, he is saying that all of humanity is created by God and that God desires all of humanity to come to know him as Savior. We should see each other as all creations of God and in such we have intrinsic worth and value. So if we're so pro-life, we're going to protect the life of an unborn child, then we better be pro-life and see all life as sacred and treat each other with respect and dignity and support. And as we already sang about, Man, I, I didn't even know I was going to be speaking on this when that song list was put together, but seeing each other in gospel. And do we value all life? But now, not just the life of someone else. Do you see your life as sacred? Do you see your life as sacred? The truth is you only have one life. It is a gift. Your time in this world is limited. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 14. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a short time and vanishes away. Can I tell you, that's the most sobering verse in the book of James. And there's a lot of sobering verses in the book of James if you've never studied it out. He says, your life is but a vapor. Do you know what that word vapor represents there? Uh, anybody ever boil water on the stove? Boil water on the stove. Raise your hand nice and high. Boiled water on the stove. Anybody messed up boiling water on the stove and you burned all the, cooked all the water out of the pan, right, and your parents got mad at you or your husband or wife got mad at you, okay? One of the first times I made mac and cheese, I just, all the water was gone. Pots just like singed and cooking. And my stepdad was like, it's macaroni and cheese. It's not rocket science. Like, how hard is this? And I was like, well, I don't know. I just, just left it keep going. I forgot about it, right? Do you know when you're boiling water 
and the steam comes off the water. You know the time it takes from the time you see the steam to the time the steam dissipates into the air and kind of disappears? That space from the, the steam coming up and then it's gone, that's vapor. That's what James is referring to. He says, your life is like that. It's here and then it's gone. I don't know about you, but when I first realized what that verse was saying, it made me step back and go, man, what am I doing with my life? Not just for me and my wealth and my security and all these other shallow American dream things we get pushed on us from high school up. But what are we doing to affect actual change for the glory of God and his kingdom? Are we making disciples? Are we growing his church? Are we discipling other people? Are we growing in our faith? Are we sharing the gospel with the time that we have? See, if you see unborn life as sacred, and you see the others around you life as sacred, then you need to see your life as sacred, which means it is limited and it has a purpose. And we need to be investing in this life. Uh, this last week, I was blessed again with an opportunity to do a funeral for a woman that was older that had passed away. And two years ago, I was able to, to do the husband's funeral for this family. And it was amazing again. It never changes. We always open the floor up. Anybody would like to share some words about her name was Patsy. If you'd like to share some words about Patsy and how she influenced your life, how she impacted you, would you like to stand and share? Do you know, again, and I've said this before, but it's always a good reminder to me, nobody talked about the car she drove. Nobody talked about the house she lived in. Nobody talked about her bank account. Nobody talked about her stuff. And isn't it amazing that the stuff that we spend so much of our life pursuing, when we die, nobody's going to talk about it anyway. Someone else will get it. Right? Goodwill will get some of it. The bank will get some of it, depending on where you are with your debt. Your spouse or your kids might get some of it. That's fine. Nothing wrong with taking care of the next generation and making sure they're taken care of. I'm all for that. But man, we pursue things that aren't to take care of our loved ones. It's to feel really good about what we've done at the end of our life. And oh, look at all the stuff that I've accumulated. In Luke, it says that a farmer had all these harvests. We talked about this on Sunday the last couple of weeks. And he had all this harvest, and he tore down his barns, and he built bigger barns to store up all this stuff so that he could just sit back and live life for years. He actually says in Luke, and he sat back and said, I don't have to work for years. I can just eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says, you fool, because your very soul is required of you tonight. You see, the principle Jesus was saying is we put all this stuff before him and we chase it and we chase it and we chase it and then our souls required of us. We're asked to leave this world. We stand before him as judge. And Jesus looks and says, what'd you do with it? And it's just that quick. Anybody ever realize, maybe as you've gotten older, how quick time goes by now? When you were younger, high school was forever. I was like, I'm literally never going to graduate. This is the longest time of my life. College was a little faster. I have an 11-year-old who's starting sixth grade. What? Like, how ridiculous is that thought? Wasn't it just yesterday I was in college? Like, how did that happen? You know why it feels that way? Because guess what? It moves. You realize whether you sit on your hands or you make disciples, time just keeps going. It's a vapor. And sooner or later, it's going to dissipate. And people will stand at your funeral, and they're not going to talk about your stuff. They're going to talk about your integrity, your character. 
At Patsy's funeral, a young girl stood up. Couldn't have been more than 16. Said, what I'll always remember about Grandma is going to her house in, up in Emily City. She lives down in the city, I guess. Up in Emily City. This is up north for some, y'all. This is, whew, up north, okay? Running in the backyard when the, the dandelions were all over the place and eating oatmeal cookies. That was her memory of Grandma. And you know what's crazy is she will sit with her kids and even her grandkids and say, let me tell you about the summers I spent at Grandma's house and the oatmeal cookies and running in the dandelions. Man, that's what we're investing. You might say, that's so silly and simple. Yeah. It's investing in people. It's loving them where they are. It's encouraging them. See, if we're going to see life as sacred, then we need to see our own lives as sacred. If you are here and you know Christ, then you've been gifted with life, a life that is sacred, one to be valued and treasured. But the truth is we will give an account for this life. Your sins are forgiven. That is taken care of, but you will stand for what you do with this life, the decisions you make in this life. If you are here and you do not know Christ, then you will stand before him and give an account for your sins. And if you stand in your sins before him, you will be sent to a place called hell. That is not my idea. That is the word of God's idea. That's Jesus' teaching, so much so that he said, I died for you. And if you will put your faith and trust in me, then I will forgive you of all your sin. The wonderful truth that I want to tell you this morning is that you do not have to stand before him in your sins. You can receive Christ today, repent of your sins, and discover eternal life. You know, in just a few minutes, we're going to take in communion. And I know that this message might seem strange to do on communion Sunday. It's a kind of a serious message to do before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But can I tell you, it really fits quite well, actually. Because we're doing this today to remember the gift that Jesus gave, which was his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we could have life. Not just life this side of heaven, eternal life. Communion is the way we remember all that Christ did for us. We were enemies with God, deserving his wrath, and yet he looked down with his love, sent his son for us. When he could have cast us away, he sought after us. Think about that. He could have casted us away and been completely right in doing so, but he sought after us and gave us an opportunity to receive him as Savior. That is exactly how pro-life God is, and yet he does give us a choice. We can choose or reject him. He will not force us. Have you chosen Christ as your Savior? And if you haven't, will you today? If you know Christ, will you see all life, including yours, as sacred and purposeful? I'm going to ask that we bow in a word of prayer. And as we bow, some of the kids are coming in from junior church. And so I'm going to ask them as quickly as they can to find mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, whoever they came with. Um, have a seat with them. And we're going to have a short invitation this morning, just an opportunity for you to respond. But I'm going to ask you, as you respond this morning, will you... Maybe you've been struggling in this area and you don't really see your life as sacred. You don't really see it as purpose and gift from God kind of level stuff. And you want to come and just pray and say, God, help me to see my life with purpose, that I was created with purpose. And you have a purpose for me. And may I get involved in what you're doing in my life and what I can do in my life to glorify you. Maybe you're here and you know someone that has had an abortion. 
And you want to come and just pray for them and say, God, would you just pour your grace upon them? Would you just encourage them and support them that they would know that you want to know them if, if you don't know them as Savior? You want to just be that, that conduit of grace to them? Or maybe you're here and you've, you've committed an, an abortion and you want to come and say, God, I just pray that you would remind me of your grace for me. As you bow your heads there where you are, can I give you one more word of encouragement? Every single life, I believe, every infant, every baby that is aborted, I believe, personally, and we can talk more about this later, I believe is in heaven. That's my belief. I believe those children are in heaven, in God's rest and peace. And so if you're here and you've committed that act, maybe you want to come and say, God, thank you that although I did this, that you were still good and faithful and, and loving. However God is speaking, would you just respond to him? Maybe you want to come and just pray before we take Lord's communion. Maybe there's an unconfessed sin in your life. Something that God has been convicting you about that you just not repented of. You've not turned over to him. And you want to come and just bend a knee and say, God, I'm giving this over to you. I'm sorry for this. I repent of this sin. I repent give it to you and I turn from it and I will follow after you. Would you respond in this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you do in our lives. You're leading, you're guiding, but Lord, most of all, we thank you for giving us life. May we see our life as sacred. May we see the lives of those around us as sacred so much so that we see their life is valuable. They have worth because they were created by God. May we take them your gospel that they may understand what it is to have not just earthly life, physical life this side of heaven, but to have eternal life that is only found in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray they would trust in you today by putting their faith in you, believing on you, repenting of their sins. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet there where you are? We're just going to sing a little bit of an invitation song this morning, and then we'll have communion. So would you just spend some time with the Lord today? Sing out where you are, or maybe you want to come and pray. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him?